0: This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account.
1: You know success when you see it.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon; Sam Zell, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment.
3: Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg
2: Radio. Giving thanks for what we've been through, for downs as well as ups, and for the opportunities yet ahead of us. This is a special Thanksgiving edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, America celebrates that holiday known as Thanksgiving when we gather with family and friends, remembering a time nearly 400 years ago when British settlers feasted to celebrate their survival and to give thanks to the American Indians who've made it possible. This year, most of us can be thankful that we haven't had to survive scenarios, anything like those early Massachusetts colonists, though we are mindful of all those who have lost loved ones to the pandemic over the last three years. We all lost something, a collective suffering collective sacrifice. A year filled with the loss of life and the loss of living. And to Ukrainians who have spent most of the year valiantly fighting off Russian invaders at a great cost of blood and treasure.
4: We will not give up. We will not lose. We will fight till the end. At sea, in the air, we will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. But for the rest of us,
2: it has been a year of great uncertainty as the economy has come back but at the cost of mounting inflation. Inflation is extremely high. The levels we're at were unimaginable 18 months ago. And so we have to get that under control. And the beginning of belt tightening that has played havoc with the plans of so many, as reflected in markets that have struggled week to week. One of the places on global Wall Street, particularly hard hit by the higher rates and greater uncertainty, has been mergers and acquisitions. And we sat down with one of the consummate deal makers, Sam Zell to talk about the climate and how it's affected his business. Let's talk about what an investor does in this new environment of increased inflation and increased interest rates. First of all, tell me what's going on with your company. Are you seeing less deal flow?
3: No, just the opposite. Uh, We're seeing more deal flow. We're seeing more situations where companies are having difficulty figuring out what to do. Uh, we're seeing situations where nine months ago uh, financing a transaction of XYZ size was nothing. You know, it was, you know, m- as you said, money was free, which changed dramatically. I mean, think about the impact of the doubling of interest rates in eight weeks. Doubling, you know, just eight weeks earlier, interest rates were... You know, two and a half to three, and now they're five and a half to six. That's an enormous change, and it's going to slow down everybody's activity. It's going to, for sure, impact getting deals done. But in our particular case, because I've oftentimes told the world that when I'm liquid, the stock market can't go down. It only goes down when I'm illiquid. (laughs) And here I am sitting there with a level of liquidity I've never experienced in my life because my focus for the last three and a half years has been on nothing more important than liquidity. Uh,
2: So you've got a significant deal flow, if anything, it's bigger than it was before. What about the quality of the deals? Are they different from what they were, for example, pre-pandemic?
3: I think they are because I think they're a little more realistic. Hmm. Uh, I think in in pre-pandemic, when money was free, we did a SPAC and chose not to take it to the next level. Because when we did the SPAC, SPAC seemed like a very interesting way to in effect monetize opportunity. Uh, It very quickly became a highly speculative scenario dependent on preposterous valuations that ultimately led to the crash of the whole SPAC market. World has changed a lot since then, and uh, and the change is basically uh, modifying what you can do. On the other hand, <clears throat> there's always demand for capital, uh, and there's always that demand is always on the on the the shoulders of those that have pr- preserved liquidity. So let's talk about some uh, specific investment opportunities. Energy. Yeah, I mean you know energy terribly well. Yes.
2: Do you see opportunities in energy right now? There's been a lot of tumult in the marketplace because of Russia and Ukraine and all sorts of reasons.
3: Yeah, I. Uh, I mean we continue to do something in the energy space, not as much as I would have thought when we when this period began. Uh, the the volatility in the energy space has been so extreme. Uh, I mean, just think about it. Within a 12-month period, the price of oil, uh, you know, you know, vacillated between 30 and 120. Uh, That's an incredible level of volatility. Makes making investments extraordinarily difficult and challenging.
2: Do you see a prospect of a little less volatility? Because you have on the one plus OPEC plus trying to limit things. Now you got the U.S. government, which, if it's not trying to regulate the price of oil, it looks kind of like it is, because it says sure. when it's going to sell and when it's going to buy.
3: So it looks like it's got
2: a bid and ask price.
3: Yeah, but we also have a, a leg- we also have an administration that's very anti-oil, and uh, and, and to, in, in my judgment, that anti-oil provision is only going to hurt the United States. I mean, we were producing 11 million barrels a day of oil. Uh, I don't know what we're doing now, but I think it's down two or three million barrels a day uh, as we've cut back on uh, capital for, the, for, for fracking, et cetera. Uh, not a healthy set of circumstances. That was Sam Zell, founder and chairman of Equity Group Investments.
2: Coming up, we'll turn to energy and the quest to get more of it with less emissions with Christine Todd Whitman, former EPA administrator and former governor of New Jersey. That's next on this special Thanksgiving edition of Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this, it's a higher rate than Robinhood.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This is a special Thanksgiving edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Energy has been much on the minds of Wall Street this year as Russia's war in Ukraine made the price of natural gas spike up.
5: The president gets it. He's been working to get price, uh, gas prices down. So, as a result, they've been coming down for the last three weeks or so. Uh, but we understand that that's partially due to the war in Ukraine, and we need to keep oil on the market.
2: And President Biden tried to keep the price of gasoline down by releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Additional 15 million barrels for December out of the SPR. But the president was doing this even as he tried to continue his push for more investment in energy sources that didn't add to carbon emissions.
3: We're proving that good climate policy is good economic policy. It's a strong foundation for durable, resilient, inclusive economic growth.
2: Much of Mr. Biden's effort was focused on renewables like wind and solar. But many of those who take the zero emissions goal seriously agree that we can't get there ultimately without nuclear energy. One of those who's been consistently advocating for the role of nuclear energy is Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey and former administrator of the EPA. And Governor Whitman joined us on Wall Street Week to explain how it could work. You've dealt with nuclear energy for years now. So give us your sense of the role of nuclear energy potentially in getting to net zero. Well,
5: I think nuclear can play a huge role, at least in the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Renewables are not yet base energy. They're peak shaving. And we're a 24-7 society, as is the rest of the world. The world is 24-7. And nuclear is the only form of base power that releases no regulated pollutants, or greenhouse gases while it's producing power. And we have an, an incredible safety record here in this country on nuclear, and actually with few, obviously, very huge exceptions, being Chernobyl and what happened in Fukushima Daiichi. Um, overall, worldwide, it's been, it's been safe and getting safer all the time. I mean, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is considered the gold standard on regulatory oversight of nuclear reactors. I don't think, given costs and time, that we're going to see any more large reactors built in this country, certainly. They are being built in China. They're being built around the world, and we can certainly play a part in developing the, the parts for those reactors. But I see the future for nuclear right now being in the small modular reactors. Well, let's
2: get to that in a moment. First of all, give us a sense of the scope of it already. One of the things that I have learned is nuclear is actually one of the few things that really don't have emissions that can be taken to scale. I think something like 20 percent of energy in the United States is generated by 70 percent in France.
5: Right. And, you know, you saw an example of what happens when you take nuclear offline. When California took the San Onofre nuclear reactor offline, their emissions went up and the cost of their energy went up. I mean, it was totally counter to everything that they were hoping to achieve in my mind. And so what I found over time is that if you have an opportunity to talk to people and answer their very real questions. I mean, it's it's normal to have questions about the safety and you should ask them, but the answers are really good and they're based on our history. You can prove that in fact, these things work. And once you do that with people, they get much more comfortable with the idea of nuclear. It's just that for so long, um, it's been used as, frankly, a fundraiser a a lot of times for the environmental groups. And we need to get the public to understand, particularly with the new small modular reactors that are built in a contained facility. They can be placed on site. They're much safer technology. They are a much safer way to produce the nuclear energy. So overall, they are really, I believe have the potential to make a huge difference, particularly if you think about um, the rural parts of America, where you're not on the grid, or you're not close to the grid. You can take a small modular reactor and provide power for an entire town or an entire business. So they have a lot of potential there.
2: So let's pursue that question of safety because that is on a lot of people's minds without a doubt. And as you've mentioned, we've had some horrific instances. Is the issue with safety that people don't realize that actually the track record is quite good for nuclear, or is it technological development, such as as you're referring to small module reactors?
5: No, I think it's because people just don't know. Uh, they don't understand. I mean, I get a lot of questions I used to in the past about, well, what about uh, the spent rods? And first of all, I tell them from all that when the time when we had 102 nuclear reactors in this country, and you took all those spent rods and you put them in one place, you'd fill up one footfall field to the height of the goalposts. They may have gotten slightly above that now because this was uh, data from several years ago. But the point being, it's not this massive thing, this size of the state of Vermont, that people kind of have in their minds. And the other thing is that what's in those spent rods is. 87 to 90% fissionable material, meaning unused energy. And in France and Japan, they figured out how to reprocess that and to get the energy out of those rods, rendering that what you have is the quote unquote bad stuff uh, to down to 15%, let's say. And it can't be used in a nuclear weapon. So it's much easier to store, much less to store. You have a lot of unused power just sitting there in these spent rods. Um, and we should be using that technology as well. And people have to understand. And when you explain it to them, you can't take one of these rods from a nuclear reactor and put it in a missile. It's not the same technology. It won't work that way. And the other thing that explained to them, because one of the most immediate uh, issues that we had in this country was Three Mile Island. And when that went down, the operators in the utility itself, in the reactor itself, were never exposed to high levels of radiation. And they've been tracked ever since. there were no releases into the community. And even those who were right there in the reactor had no adverse reaction to what happened. And in fact, it was because they overrode the system really that you had the partial meltdown. Fukushima Daiichi, that wasn't because of the earthquake. It was because of the tsunami. And that was because they had their backup power, their generator, located physically in the reactor building. After 9-11, our nuclear regulatory commission said to our nuclear industry, you got to move those out. They cannot be co-located with the reactor itself. So we, that kind of thing can't happen here anymore.
2: Just this week, we saw an announcement of a deal to acquire Westinghouse Electric, uh, basically on the premise that, in fact, we're going to have more nuclear energy. Do you anticipate that in the United States?
5: Well, I certainly hope we do, but it was, what, not even 10 years ago, I guess, there were four proposed reactors two in georgia and two in south carolina and we were very hopeful that those were going to come in on budget and on time and they both ran over and the utilities decided in each case that it just wasn't worth going forward so it is a question of cost and regulatory hurdles but you want to have those regulations in place because that's what protects the community and make sure that things are safe and streamline how you approach them That was Christine Todd
2: Whitman, former governor of New Jersey and EPA administrator. Coming up, higher interest rates this year have really hit the real estate market hard. We get the overview from Tom Shapiro of GTIS Partners. That's next on this special Thanksgiving edition of Wall Street Week
3: on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This is a special Thanksgiving edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Real estate is never far from the mind of global Wall Street. In the United States, construction accounts for 3.9% of all GDP and 1.3% of the jobs. So when you start the year with mortgage rates around 3.3% and they reach seven by the end of the year, it can make for a bit of a rough ride. One of those feeling the ride most directly is Tom Shapiro. He's co-founder and chief investment officer of GTS Partners, and he joined us on Wall Street Week to take us through some of the struggles, but also some high points for real estate adjusting to higher interest rates. First of all, I wanna start with your take on where the housing market is right now. We've seen some slowing even this week with some new housing sales, as well as existing housing sales.
6: Sure, first, thank you so much for having me on the show. Why don't I just give you a little anecdotal evidence of what what we're seeing in the field right now. Our home sales are down about 15 to 20 percent, but that's a headline number. And, you know, I think it would be helpful to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that number. The reason for the most part it's down is because we can't deliver homes. We're still having tremendous supply chain issues. Also, we find that a lot of home builders are actually holding back on the number of homes they want to deliver and that is for a couple reasons one inflation because costs keep going up and they don't know what it's going to actually cost to finish the house and and two they want to ride up the home price appreciation so i would say for the most part right now while we see a 15 to 20 percent slowdown in sales year over year a lot of that is because of other extraneous issues it's more of a delivery issue than it's a demand issue with that said we're definitely starting to see a pullback. Uh, we're starting to have to go deeper into our wait lists, but every house at this point that we deliver in the markets we're in, we are selling. So, but so, I, I think we have to be careful about what, what we see, you know, on a going forward basis, because definitely we're starting to see things slowing
0: down.
2: That's a really helpful way of putting it up because we're having those discussions about the overall economy. Is it supply, is it demand? As I understand, it, you've got a supply problem because of supply chains. People say that's going to go away. Is it going away in housing?
6: Well, it's not. I mean, we definitely have issues. We have problems getting trusses and windows and appliances. Um, we're delivering homes with plywood windows at times. Um, it's, it, we're having all sorts of issues. And of course, you know, the war in Ukraine and what's going on in China and the work stoppages there, um, the deliveries and transportation is an issue, and jobs are an issue, and trades are an issue. So it, it's gotten marginally better. But we still have tremendous supply chain issues. Uh, and look, if you look at how many houses we're delivering a year in total, this is all, all forms. It's about 1.2 million housing units a year, which is sort of in equilibrium.
2: So, Tom, uh, some of the issue can be on the demand side at some point. We've heard about mortgage rates going up to, what, 5.5 percent, something like that. So that must affect it to some extent. Are you seeing some effects with that? Because we also have the Fed is going to start selling off some of those mortgage-backed securities. Yeah,
6: for sure. I mean, look, the consumers stretch. So why are they stretch? They stretch because of inflation. So we have all sorts of issues. We have gas prices are more expensive. And we have the cost of food is more expensive, and of course, as you point out, mortgage rates are, are, are an issue. So the consumer is stretched, and that is certainly going to be an issue on a going forward basis on housing. But we are seeing, you know, people taking less options; they're going to slightly smaller unit types, um, and they're renting. So we aren't necessarily seeing a slowdown at this point because of mortgage rates. But again, I, I think we have to be careful. I, I think. You know, the crystal ball says it's gonna get a lot worse. We're not seeing it today, but I think in the future we are gonna see a slowdown.
2: When you say things are going to get worse, a lot of us go back to 2008, uh, the last time we really thought hard about a housing crisis in this country. And there are some anecdotal incidents where it sort of feels like 2006, 2007, where people are outbidding each other for houses. They're going way above the asking price. Are there parallels with what happened in 2008?
6: It's an ama- It's really, really good question. So, so why don't we go back in history? Because I think you know we really have to analyze what, where did we end up in in 08 and why did we end up there? So, if you if you look back to 2005, we produced two million housing units. So, in general, we produce 1.2 million households a year. What's a household? Your kid graduates college and moves into an apartment. Uh, a, couple moves out of their parents' house, and they, and they take an apartment. There's a divorce, etc., cetera. And that creates a need for housing units. So against a, a total need of 1.2 million units, we produced two. And then it did slow down. Because remember, after 05, even before the GFC, we started to have a housing slowdown. We still produced 1.5 million housing units. So we had a massive oversupply uh, going into then a demand shock. So it was really the perfect storm. And that is why we end up with the global financial crisis.
2: That was Tom Shapiro, president and co-founder of GTIS Partners. Coming up, the tight labor market has continued throughout the year. We talked about the causes, including some that may not be going away anytime soon, with special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers of Harvard, and with economist Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland. That's next on this special Thanksgiving
0: edition of Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David
2: Weston. Even as the markets and investors have struggled to come to grips with higher interest rates and less fiscal stimulus coming from the government, even as inflation has cut into wages and profits, the labor market this year has continued to be robust.
4: The labor market is still strong, but it requires a Fed that has a lot more skill and a lot more luck.
2: Some of that may be, as they say, transitory, the continued aftermath of the pandemic and a dramatic snapback in the economy. There are also more structural, longer forces at play, and we turn to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, and his fellow economist from Maryland, Melissa Carney, to take us through some of those longer-term labor market issues. They joined us from the Aspen Economic Strategy Group's meeting in Colorado. Let's start with the question of where growth will come on the other side of whatever it is we're going through, because that's ultimately gonna be the question here. I understand from economists like you, it comes from one of two sources, either more workers or more productivity. Are we gonna get more workers?
1: We're looking at both fewer workers and lower productivity, as you know. So let me focus on the fewer workers uh, aspect for a moment. The real issue, demographic issue facing the U.S. is we have a plummeting birth rate. And so total fertility in the U.S. is now below the level required to keep population growth constant. And so the issue here is that on average now, a woman in the U.S. is expected to have 1.65 children over her lifetime so women used to have three kids then it fell to two women were having comfortably above two kids for many decades with a with a fertility rate below two that means our population is going to age and it's not going to grow and so eventually we're going to have a shrinking working age population
7: unless Melissa we have uh, immigration and that's why immigration I think many of us at this conference feel is so very, very important. What's your sense of what economists would say, the politics apart, um, about the immigration policy?
1: Economists love immigration. We think immigration is a a potential answer to our demographic challenges, as well as our productivity innovation challenges. Since immigrants come in, they work, they're more likely than native-born Americans to be entrepreneurs and innovators. Of course, as you know, Larry, immigration rates are way down. So we used to bring in, as you know, 2016, we had as many as a million new people coming into the country every year. That number is now below 250,000. And so the combination of a declining native-born population and a decline in immigration portends even worse demographic challenges than if we were just facing one versus the other.
7: Let me see if I can do a little arithmetic based on what you said. From 1 million to yeah. 250,000. Yeah. So that's about 750,000 people a year. So that's about half a percent of our workforce, maybe a little less. So half a percent slower labor force uh, growth over time can accumulate to something uh, that, is very, that is very large.
1: And, and <laughs> if we go back to the birth rates, we have about 500,000 fewer babies being born a year. Than in the
7: not distant past, Melissa. If you, um, what would you say about about this? Um, most people are scared that immigrants come and they take jobs for Americans, and that if there are more immigrants, then there aren't going to be as many jobs for Americans, or if there are jobs, because there's more competition, uh, they're going to be paid less. And that's true whether the job people think. Is working at McDonald's, or is uh, working doing computer programming at Microsoft? What? How do you, How should people feel? Shouldn't they? Ha- shouldn't they have this worry that they're going to be poorer if we take all the immigrants? Just like they get hurt if we take a lot of lo- a lot of trade from other countries where they have much lower wages?
1: So so the reason economists are so bullish on immigration is because we have so much evidence that immigrants are good for the economy. They are good for most workers. But it is true that there are some groups in some places that will feel wage pressures. And I think the way we... The way we solve this issue is to make sure that we recognize the disparate impacts of certain groups. We recognize that low-wage workers in certain sectors might not experience the benefits, the overall benefits, that immigrants bring to the economy. And we take steps to help them. I mean, it's it's not dissimilar to what we have to do with trade, too. You know, more imports is good for most people, but some people are harmed by it. We're going to see this, too, with the shift to green, a greener um, economy. Some people are going to lose their jobs, even though it's better for everyone. And so, I mean, I, I think acknowledging that some people feel and are harmed mm-hmm. by this, but that's a small, concentrated group and taking steps to address that allows us to do things that make the economy grow and and be more productive
2: so i wanted to come back to fertility larry's pointed out a way in which economics whether misperceived or not may affect our willingness to have immigration what about fertility are there economic causes for the reduction in fertility
1: so the decline in U.S. fertility, and it's really being driven by a plummeting of birth rates since 2007, births fell after the Great Recession, they haven't recovered. Um, you can't point to any any policy or economic factor that's changed since 2007. So sometimes people will say things like child care has become more expensive, and if we just made childcare less expensive, people would return to having more than two kids. I, I, there, I just not, that is just not the case, right? There's nothing, uh, there's nothing that easy that we could point to. And in fact, US women now are just having births in the same way that women in other high-income tr- countries have reduced their birth rates long before in the 80s and 90s. So I don't think this is going to be easy to turn around. Lots of other countries have taken direct steps to try and incentivize people to have more kids. There's a lot of countries that have experimented with baby bonuses, a few thousand dollars. Birth rates go up a little bit in the following year, but nothing like the 20% increase in infertility we would need to get back to replacement level.
7: Melissa, having an expert like you here, I can't resist uh Stepping out of our mutual lane as economists to ask a question I suspect is on many people's minds. Do you think that the recent Supreme Court decision and the steps that are going to be taken in a number of states, do you think that's going to materially affect the number of births in the United States?
1: The, we do have estimates on this based, based on you know, lots of data we have about how abortion restrictions you know, lead to more birth rates. I expect there will be about uh, 100,000 more births a year. This is not going to bring fertility rates back to where they were. This is going to mean that some women who wouldn't want to have a child now are going to. Um, Since you raised the issue, I will say that this makes the imperative of doing more to support kids and low-income women in this country that much stronger.
2: That was special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers and University of Maryland professor of economics, Melissa Carney. Getting money for free, or close to it, can be nice. It allows us to pursue hopes and dreams that we otherwise might not be able to afford, leading to investments that couldn't be made with higher hurdle rates.
6: I outline everything from community college block grants to aid to communities, to reform of the earned income tax credit to
2: support work. All of that is probably about $100 billion a year. That's real money. But what happens when the music stops, or at least slows down a fair amount, as interest rates shoot up and the bankers and other lenders get out their sharp pencils? Then, as Warren Buffett famously said, we find out who's been swimming without their trunks. And at the front of the line are the so-called zombie companies, the ones who aren't throwing off enough cash to meet their interest payments, much less pay off their principal. Sonia Gibbs, Managing Director of the Institute of International Finance, joined us on Wall Street Week this year to take us through the problem and what it may mean for the rest of us. Let me start with those basic questions. What exactly is a zombie company and how many of them are there out there?
8: First of all, to take a step back, what you need to think about is that over the past 10 or 15 years, global debt levels have skyrocketed. We've had very low interest rates, and for example, non-financial corporate debt around the world is now close to 100% of GDP, and that's more than double what it was a decade ago. So that's a very worrying backdrop. And so what we mean by zombie companies is a company that essentially has to borrow to keep going. They are highly leveraged. They're not growing very fast. Their revenues are not up to par. And at the moment, they face a very difficult situation. You've got higher input costs, so your commodity prices are higher, wages are rising. At the same time, you don't earn enough revenue to cover all of these higher costs and your debt service. So if you have a ratio of revenues to interest costs that's one or less, if you can barely cover your debt service costs, we call you a zombie company. And it's a very good name, it's very evocative. And for how many, I mean, it's difficult to calculate, right? Because for a lot of firms that, for example, aren't publicly listed, the information might be less available, They might be smaller, non-public companies, but the Federal Reserve estimates that between five and 10% of US firms fall into this category. it's also important to remember that this is not a static world. It's not once a zombie, always a zombie. Conditions change, and in fact, becoming a zombie company is a little bit cyclical in the sense that when times are good, maybe interest rates are low, growth is high, maybe you're not a zombie. But then, you know, bad things happen. Pandemics happen, shocks happen, interest rates go up, and a company that was formerly doing reasonably well might suddenly fall into the zombie category.
2: That was Sonia Gibbs of the Institute of International Finance. That does it for this special Thanksgiving edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly.